Luke chapter 1. We started last week uh, what I think will be a bit of a journey in Luke over, over a period of time, might be a, might be a long time. Um, we're not going to stay exclusively in Luke, but I think I'll be lifting a lot from Luke over the next couple of years because I just want to gaze at Jesus. Um, and Luke is, is a gospel that we haven't spent a lot of time in over the years. I've spent a lot of time in John and Mark and other places. And I just, just want to go on a, on a mosey through Luke and see the Jesus that Luke presents to us. So last week we, we had Zachariah and his experience with Gabriel. When Gabriel showed up, sneaky Gabriel came in. How did he get in? We don't know. But he came in and he was there standing beside the altar when Zechariah opened his eyes, scared the wits out of him, and uh, prophesied and spoke to Zechariah. Wonderful story. And then Zechariah, silent for months, and sings his great song at the end. There are four songs in, uh, in these opening chapters of Luke, and we're, we're going to look at all of them over the next few weeks, or look in the context of them. But today, Mary, um, chapter 1, verse 26. Open your heart that even in familiar places, you'll maybe the Holy Spirit might just illuminate something new for you. In the sixth, sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, <clears throat> to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great. And will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel. Since I am a virgin. The angel answered. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. Holy Spirit, come and illuminate the precious word of God. Make it real and transformative in our hearts. Speak to us, we pray. Exalt Jesus in our lives and in our midst. Amen. It all starts with a woman. I love that. It all starts with a woman. It all ends with a woman as well, with women at the tomb. It's women that bring the resurrection stories back from the tomb and are the first ones to proclaim that he has risen. It all starts with a woman. The church historically has silenced women. Even in recent months, a prominent leader and writer in the United States, who you would know, but I won't mention, 
at his annual conference, mocked a lady called Beth Moore because she preaches the word of God. And in front of a packed auditorium, he mocked her, he laughed at her, his audience laughed at her, and it was disgraceful. But yet you go into every Christian bookshop in the world, probably, of any size, you will find an awful lot of his books. A few years ago, some of his books were on my bookshelf, and then I relocated them to a thing called The Skip. <laughs> Viciously opposed to women in any form of ministry or leadership, and mocking it. It all started with a woman. God didn't have to do it this way. He didn't have to do it this way. He could have come any way he wanted, and he chose to come as a tiny baby inside Mary. I can imagine Gabriel, after his encounter with Zechariah, this is where the imagination goes a bit daft sometimes, but debrief, you know, when Gabriel gets back to Angel HQ and sort of sits down and chats through what happened with Zechariah and, and maybe the other angels said to him, Gabriel, we were watching. You scared the wits out of Zechariah. You were just there by the altar when he opened his eyes and uh, you really need to work on your approach to humans a little bit better. So Gabriel, second time around as he comes to Mary, he's straight in in verse 21, 28 with greetings. Okay, he's, hello Mary, hi you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. He's very, very quick to, to put her at ease and, and that she would not be frightened. And the way that he puts her at ease is lovely. And this is the thing that puts all of us at ease. In verse 28, you see the words at the end of that verse, the Lord is with you. Mentioned it last week, nothing drives away fear like the presence of God. The presence of God. And and. Sometimes maybe it's just so simple that we miss it. But whenever we read, the Lord is with you, we are in the presence of God. Jesus said, I will be with you always. Not just Sunday morning when you're singing, but I will be with you always. His presence drives away fear. Just this week, I was in contact with a, with a friend who, 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 whose life's just full of fear. And he said, I've realized that, that there's so much fear has come into my life. So much fear. The thing that dispels fear is the presence of God. And if your life is filled with fear and fears and anxieties and things have started to enter and torment you, you need to be in the presence of God. Both individually carving out that daily time in his presence and corporately with his people in community, worshiping, praying, seeking his face, listening to his word in his presence because then fear has to go. Greetings, you who are highly favored. This little girl, she's probably 14, highly favored. The Lord is with you. Favor is mentioned twice. It's mentioned again in, in verse 30. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. See, Mary historically has been slightly misrepresented. Um, you see pictures of Mary about the place and you get the impression that she just spent her life sort of fawning around with, with brightly colored robes on her, making hand gestures towards people and blessing them, bestowing blessing on people. Mary in this passage does not bestow blessing on anyone. She receives blessing. She's the recipient of blessing from God. She is not the provider of blessing to others. 
And when, when Mary or when the angel Gabriel says to Mary, you have found favor with God, there is no reason for that at all. There's nothing in Mary that should merit or earn favor with anyone. She is uneducated, she is poor, she is young, and she is female. And those are four reasons in the ancient world to look down on somebody. Uneducated, poor, young, and female. In that culture, everything was against her. And she was overlooked and disregarded by the rest of society. But this is a God who uses people like that. God overlooks the powerful and the mighty and the influential and he moves in people like Mary. The greatest movements of God come as he works through people that the rest of the world would overlook. We sometimes hear these names of great people in the past, great men and women of God, and we assume maybe that somebody like D.L. Moody was highly educated and and you know was born with a silver spoon in his mouth and everything going for him and was wealthy and it was is the exact opposite when you look into the stories of these people they're just like mary they're absolute nobodies they have nothing going from them and no reason why they should be used by god and that in itself becomes the reason why god uses them and he gets all the glory In verses 31 to 33, we see some things about this child who will be born. His name will be Jesus, Savior. And whereas John the Baptist was described as being great in the eyes of the Lord last week to to Zechariah, Jesus has just declared he will be great, full stop. He will be great. Luke uses one of his favorite words again. You know what it is by now, mega. It appears over and over again in his gospel. He will be mega. He will be great. He will be huge. I think sometimes the gospel writers struggled for language. They they struggled for words to describe how incredible Jesus is. I think of John as he writes Revelation 1 and I, I just I picture John just in, in frustration trying to describe this wonderful risen Jesus that he has seen on the island of Patmos and he just can't find words. And he's reaching for illustrations from nature about his voice being like the sound of many waters and things like that. But I can imagine I'm just frustrated that, that the language that he has is, just does not have the scope to describe how wonderful Jesus is. He is mega. He is great. He's the son of the most high and he will be given the throne of his father, David. David is mentioned several times in the first two or three chapters of Luke because for years, centuries, this people have been waiting for a king. Waiting for a king. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 7, there was a prophecy given to David about a kingdom and about a king whose rule would never end whose kingdom would continue forever. There were glimpses of some of that in Solomon, but Solomon dropped the ball big time because he played around too much with women and with horses from Egypt that he was not allowed to buy, according to Deuteronomy, but he did. No, they were awaiting a king whose kingdom would never pass away. Rejection could not end the kingdom of Jesus crucifixion could not end the kingdom of Jesus. Two millennia have not ended the kingdom of Jesus. Death could not hold him. The veil tore before him. 
And he silenced the boast of sin and grave. Nothing could stop him. Nothing could put an end to his kingdom. That's why we are here today, worshiping him. Because we are part of a kingdom that 2,000 years ago was declared to be a kingdom that would never end. Never, ever pass away. He reigns forever. And Mary then asks the question in verse 34. She knows a wee bit about biology and she says, how will this be? As I said earlier, she's about 14. And this is not doubt. This is not like Zachariah last week who doubted and was silenced for nine months. (laughs) Mary was not silenced for nine months. There's not doubt in this question. All she wants is a wee bit of an explanation. Nothing more. And the explanation is given. And it is the same explanation for every genuine act of God. The explanation is this in verse 34, 35, sorry. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. That's what happens when God does something mega and something great. Whether it's through Mary, whether it's through Zechariah and Elizabeth, whether it's through the early church in the book of Acts, or whether it's through us. It's the Holy Spirit upon us. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. What else will happen? Verse 35, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That's drawing from Exodus 40 where the cloud covers the tabernacle. Overshadows it, same language, and that the the presence of God fills it. What the angel is basically saying to Mary is you're going to be like a tabernacle. The the power and the presence of God will overshadow you and he will fill you. He will be within you. The power of the Most High. It's that protective presence as well in Psalm 91 about, about dwelling under the shadow of the Almighty. It's the language that the angel is drawing from. And it's exactly the same words. Remember that, that Luke also wrote Acts and in Acts chapter 1, you've got, you've got the birth of the church. In Luke chapter 1, you've got the birth of Jesus. Acts chapter 1, it's the birth of the church. And Jesus says to them, Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized you with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And verse 7, sorry, verse 8, he says, You will receive power. <coughs> when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. It's the same language, Acts 1, Luke 1. It's carefully selected. He's doing it on purpose. I believe he wrote both books together, wrote one with the second one already in his head that he was going to do it. And he's using the same language, the same Holy Spirit, the same power that overshadowed Mary in the birth of Jesus is the same power that overshadowed the church and built and filled it whenever it was born. God's power and God's spirit does transformation, does things that cannot be done in the natural. And Mary doesn't ask for a sign, but she gets one, which is nice. She says, go see your Elizabeth. Go see your cousin Elizabeth. Go and see her. She's, she's already pregnant. She was, she's too old to be pregnant, but pregnant she is. Go and see her as a sign that this is actually happening. Nothing is impossible with God. Mentioned it last week. What have we stopped praying for? What have we stopped praying for? Nothing is impossible with God. I would love to see us praying more and more and more and more, both individually and together. I would love someone to come and say, I'm going to start another prayer meeting. Prayer meeting on Tuesday night, but not everybody can attend, so I'm going to start another prayer meeting. I'd love to see more prayer. 
more people seeking God, crying out to him. It's the only way anything will be achieved of any lasting value. We need to be praying. I really would encourage you, if anybody has, has an hour this week, some other night other than Tuesday, get down, get the lights on and say, come on, somebody join me and let's pray for Friday night. Somebody join me and let's pray for Sunday night. And keep on going. Somebody join me. Because once these things start, they tend to keep on going. <laughs> Stefan said to me about, I don't know how long ago, Stefan, about a year, a year and a half ago, maybe not quite, we should get together on a Friday morning and pray for an hour. Still doing it. <laughs> you know, a few others have joined in. Once these things start, they keep going. We need to be praying because nothing is impossible with God. And you know what? In verse 38, we see a model response from Mary. But there are also a couple of wrong responses she could have come up with. She could have said it's impossible because frequently when God wants to do something great, it is impossible, naturally speaking. And uh, she could have just said, "Ah, come on, that can't happen. can't happen to me for any multitude of reasons that we've already looked at. Or she could also have made the the wrong response of saying, well, I'll make it happen. I'll make it happen. I've heard what God has said and I'm going to make it happen. Abram tried that. Because he had a promise from God about a son and it took a long time to be fulfilled. And in the meantime, he tried to make it happen by having a son with Hagar. Sometimes it can be very hard to actually make that call whenever God has spoken. And you know he's spoken to wait for him to make it happen or to force onwards and try to make it yourself is a difficult, difficult place to be sometimes. But her actual response is perfect. I think she's held up here as the example of a disciple. She's the mother of Jesus, but I think she's held up as the example of a follower of Jesus and the posture and the attitude that we should have because she says in verse 38, I'm the Lord's servant and may it be to me as you have said. Now, for her to say that, there was a cost. There was a huge cost. She was probably going to lose Joseph. Class we video appeared on YouTube there just the other day. I'll, I'll share it with you later. Just a, just a little short 10-minute movie about, about Mary and Joseph that some Christian studio have put together. She's probably going to lose Joseph. Really. Like, there's no chance of Joseph hanging about. As far as she's concerned, no chance. He's gone and he's out of there. She, she knows that's going to happen. Thankfully, it didn't. But in her mind, this is what's going to happen. She's going to lose Joseph. She's definitely going to lose her reputation. Definitely. Imagine the names she was called. Don't know what her parents maybe would have said to her. Or her friends. Or the neighbors. People in the local synagogue. The religious people. Imagine the names that she was called. Because this is Nazareth. And Nazareth had a lot of brothels in it. Imagine the names that she was called. Because later on in the Gospels, in John, Jesus is having an encounter with the Pharisees. And you realize that there's something that has rumbled right since his birth. Because in John 8, they say to Jesus, we are not illegitimate children. We poke, we dig. He's talking about fatherhood. And they say to him, you're the one who's illegitimate. We are not illegitimate children. Now that's 30 years after his birth. 
You imagine Mary has probably dealt with this throughout Jesus' 30 years. She's probably dealt with having these slurs and things thrown at her continually, being called names. She had to put up with a lot of nastiness. She did not swan about in brightly colored robes, blessing people. Yeah? And if you allow God to birth something within you and through you, you will probably be called names. You'll probably be put down by people. No matter whether that thing is a success or not a success in the eyes of others, you will still probably be called names. Mary was called names because she allowed God to birth something within her. And if you allow God to birth something within you, you will probably be called all sorts of things. There is a cost to discipleship. There's a cost to following Jesus. There is risk in going God's way. You'll lose your reputation. You'll be called all sorts of things. In verses 39 to 45, she goes to Elizabeth. And there's a wonderful moment whenever she goes to visit Elizabeth. Because the last prophet of the old covenant is in Elizabeth's womb, John the Baptist. And the new covenant personified in Jesus is in Mary's womb. And the two covenants meet. And I just love where they meet. They don't meet in the temple. They don't meet in a synagogue. They don't meet in the sky surrounded by bright lights and glory. They meet inside the wombs of two women who are complete nobodies. The two covenants are face to face. And John just starts boogieing in Elizabeth's womb. Somersaults and kicks and wrecking about all over the place. Love that. You couldn't make this stuff up, folks. You couldn't make it up. You just couldn't. They meet and boom. And Elizabeth proclaims a blessing on Mary in verse 45 and says, Blessed is she who has believed what the Lord has said and that it will be accomplished. There is a blessing in believing what God has said, in obeying what he has spoken and seeing him bring it to pass. We have lots of ideas for how we define blessing sometimes. Frequently we define blessing in terms of our material needs and those things that God provides are blessings. But here, blessing is to see God accomplish what he spoke into Mary's life. And then Mary sings. She could have worried. She could have stressed out. She could have thought, my goodness, I can't cope with this. I'm going to lose Joseph. I'm going to lose my parents. are going to chuck me out. I'm going to be slandered by everybody in the town. There's loads of things that she could have worried about. Loads of things. But she chose, instead of worrying, to worship. Has anybody ever told you to stop worrying and you're just like, I can't? <laughs> you know? It's just like, I, I, I actually, I can't just like switch it off but you can replace it with something else and you can drive it away. She replaced worry with worship. She chose to worship. She chose to sing in the middle of the mystery as we sang earlier. I intentionally have usually zero or very little influence in the choice of songs on a Sunday morning. I do that intentionally because I just like to see what, what actually happens. And, but that song was on my mind, you know. I raise a hallelujah in the middle of the mystery. Complete mystery for Mary. What is going on here and where is this going to lead to? But anyway, in the middle of it, I'm going to raise a hallelujah. I'm going to sing and I'm going to exalt God. What makes you celebrate? What makes you shout? You know, what makes you shout and sing? I shouted and sang 
when Origi scored the fourth goal against Barcelona back in April. Okay, I shouted in the house. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what he did. <laughs> but he was caught. <laughs> what, what, what makes you shout? What makes you sing? What makes you dance in funny ways in public places? What, what is it, you know? Concerts, we go to concerts and we sing. What is it that brings out wild celebration, uninhibited worship? <laughs> Singing's good for you. Did you know that? Singing releases, according to scientists and smart people, singing releases endorphins. Those are the hormones that make you feel pleasure and euphoria. Singing releases those. Singing releases oxytocin. We were talking about that earlier. Oxytocin is the cuddle hormone. When you get a wee snuggle, you know, and, and, and uh, there's, you know, there's a hormone release. That's released during singing as well. Apparently, singers and musicians often have higher IQs than non-singers and non-musicians. Think of that. <laughs> you know, a lot of people are saying Amen. Apparently singing can improve your brain function. Apparently singing lowers your blood pressure. It develops your, young, your lungs and improves your posture and it improves your memory. There is no tribe or people group in the history of the world that has not sang. People sing. Now they might sing to different gods. They might sing in football stadiums on a Saturday afternoon. They might sing at rock concerts on a Saturday night. But people sing all over the world, all through history. Humanity sings. No group is immune from it. There's one or two slightly strange groups of Christians about who don't sing. Bizarre. I'm sorry, but it's just bizarre um, to not sing. We have, uh, we have a son. We have a young man in our house who sings all the time. Just goes about the house singing his head off. Yeah, Singing is instinctive to us. Singing can be wonderful in times of trial. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas are in jail. They thought they were lost. There's an old song says, the dungeon shook and the chains fell off. Keep your eyes on the prize and hold on. They sang in that prison. I don't know if you've ever listened to old songs known as spirituals, songs that were sang by black slaves in America. Wonderful songs. Wonderful songs. There's one, um, Oh Mary, Don't You Weep. What is it? If, if I could, I surely would stand on the rock where Moses stood. Pharaoh's army got drowned. Mary, don't weep. Why did they sing? Why did they sing over and over again about Egypt and about Pharaoh's army getting drowned? It's because they were slaves. And they were singing not against Pharaoh, but against the white taskmasters that were driving them as slaves. But there are wonderful songs from that era of history where these people just got up and sang to keep themselves going every day. Singing was the weapon that they used. The melody was the weapon in their, in their troubles. Or protest songs like We Shall Overcome sang throughout history, sang in the, in the civil rights movement in the, in the States in the last century. Tremendous, simple songs. But there's, there's a video of just masses of people in Washington singing that, an old black and white video singing We Shall Overcome, just all crowded around the sort of the Lincoln Memorial and, the, and the, that big 
pointy thing and there's a name for it like but they're all they're all there and, and singing singing that song Hugh what is it called yeah, uh, but, but the you know there's is, is that the Lincoln Memorial is it? Uh, maybe it is um but you know you know where I'm talking about you've seen it on TV but they're all just marching masses there's a boy up hanging in a tree with a banner you can just about make them out in the grainy photography and they're all just saying we shall overcome we shall live in peace we'll walk hand in hand someday wonderful those songs that people come together and sing mary sang some people don't like singing here's what john wesley wrote at the start of one of his books of hymns you like this (laughs) he said sing lustily (laughs) and with good courage there's a great way to get people to come to church we (laughs) sing lustily right i'm going Sing lustily and with good courage. And he goes on to say, Beware of singing as if you were half dead or half asleep, but lift up your voice with strength. That was Wesley's advice to his singers. We give reasons not to sing. I can't sing in that key. Well, for years I've been singing out of key and got on just fine. Okay, doesn't matter. Sing out of key. I don't know the words, mime, bluff, wing it. Brittany made a whole career out of miming when she didn't know the words. Don't, you know, I've never heard that song before. We do too many new songs. You'll get it on the second time. They're not musically complex. Three chords and the truth is usually the, the bottom line for Christian music. Right? You'll get it second time around. I was reading Revelation just this weekend in, in my reading plan and singing all over the place. Don't bother turning to it, but just Revelation 5. Something happens in Revelation 5. There's, there's, there's somebody mentioned in Revelation 5 that's not in Revelation 4. Just this wonderful moment in Revelation 5, 6. There's, there's despair in John's heart because there's a scroll, but there's nobody to open it. There's nobody to put it into action. And then he writes, I saw a lamb. And suddenly, verse 9, all the living creatures and elders around the throne, verse 9, they sang a new song. Verse 12, in a loud voice, they sang. Verse 13, every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, singing, 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 day and night, night and day, let incense arise. Singing continually. Satan wants to silence your song. He wants to stop you from singing. Has he, is he having success in silencing your song? Yeah, he wants to silence your song. He hates it. And he wants to stop you from singing. You had those moments where you don't want to sing. And you just have to make a stand and be defiant and say I am going to raise a hallelujah. I have made a decision and I am going to keep on singing. He wants to silence your song. So there are reasons not to sing that we come up with and they're usually, they're usually not great reasons. Reasons to sing, do we have any of those? Listen to this. My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, 
For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. There's a reason to sing. From now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Love that. He's done great things for everybody and he's done great things in general. But Mary sings, he's done great things for me. That's a reason to sing. Holy is his name. There's another reason to sing. His mercy extends to those who fear him. I'll sing about that from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. Let's sing about that. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. We'll sing about that as well. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. So we'll sing. He has filled the hungry with good things. I'll sing about that. I like being filled with good things. He has sent the rich away empty. We'll sing about that as well. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Reasons to sing 101, church. Okay, Not feeling great is not there. A bad week is not there. All these things happen. All of us have battled and found times when it's hard to raise our voice and sing. But Mary gives us just a list of reasons to sing unto God. She says, magnify. And this, this, this then become, becomes the name of the song in Latin, the Magnificat. Magnify. There's two ways you can magnify things. You can use a microscope, which makes something really, really small look bigger. That's not what we're doing when we're singing to God. We're not taking something really small and trying to make it look bigger. You can use a telescope which gives you a clearer picture of something that is massive. We're using a telescope. When we magnify him, we get a clearer picture of who he is. We declare his greatness and we declare his character. We are magnifying him. And I love the fact that Mary's song is all about God. Mentioned last week, Christmas music. Some of it I like, some of it I loathe. Some of it just is insipid drivel about nothing. But I love songs like O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Powerful songs about a saviour coming to ransom his captive people. I think we need the heat on. Do we need the heat on? Yeah? Okay, all in favour say aye. Scott, you're right. You're outnumbered, buddy. Um, Yeah, this song is all about God. This song is a celebration. Next Sunday night will be a celebration. Have you ever been at a carol service and it's mournful and miserable? We're going to celebrate next Sunday night. We're going to celebrate the king and the kingdom that that will never end. We're going to celebrate the victory, the good news, the gospel that, as we were taught yesterday, a few of us were using, has come to the poor. The kingdom of God has come and the gospel comes to the poor. We're going to sing and celebrate. He is mindful in verse 48 of our lowly estate. God uses the nobodies. David was such a nobody that Jesse did not even bring him in from the fields whenever the prophet Samuel was coming to visit. Just left him out there. Insignificant. You weigh and play with your sheep. Your older brothers can come in. He uses the nobodies. And the thing I was chatting to Linda about called imposter syndrome. You ever heard of imposter syndrome? It's a sort of a, a mindset that people can have that they should not be where they are 
They should not be doing what they're doing and a fear that they're going to be exposed at some stage as, as frauds or having got where they are by deception rather than by any gift or calling. I think Satan uses that because I think God uses nobodies. And then one of the fears that we have is or one of the things that gets into our head is I shouldn't really be here. I shouldn't really be doing this. I don't know if you've ever thought that. I've thought that so many times in the last 20 years, genuinely, in, 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 in ministry, in work, in lots of different... I've just sort of th- sat and looked around the room and quietly thought, I, should, this, this, I shouldn't be here. It's got the wrong guy. Somebody else should be here. I've sat in rooms with people in, in, just in a professional context who are vastly qualified beyond me, PhDs hanging out of them, and I'm just sitting there looking around thinking should not be here. How have I ended up here? <laughs> you know, beware that. Beware that lie, that accusation that Satan brings in and remind yourself about Mary the nobody who God uses and the fact that throughout scripture it is nobodies that God uses. And don't allow the fact that you are a nobody <laughs> in the eyes of the world, don't allow Satan to capitalize on that and try to take your calling away from you. And try to tell you that you should not be doing what God has told you to do. He has done great things for me. And I wonder, did, did Mary, I never noticed this before, but it just came into my mind this morning. In verse 48, Mary, I, I, I speculated earlier that Mary was called a lot of nasty names. And I wonder the way that she counteracted that was instead of arguing with people, instead of saying, I'm not like that, that's not who I am, don't call me that. In verse 48, she takes it to the Lord and she sings, All from now on, all generations will call me. What? <laughs> will call me the, the horrible names that have been called by the people in my village? Now all generations are going to call me blessed. That's how she counteracted, I believe, the, 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 the slander and the stuff that was thrown at her. She worshipped God and says, No, you're, you've called me blessed and all generations are going to call me blessed. She speaks of the mercy that God has for those who fear him. This is a revolutionary song. A Methodist preacher, I'm going all Methodist today, Nigel, do you like it? A Methodist preacher called E. Stanley Jones said, this song is the most revolutionary document in the history of the world. In fact, Archbishop William Temple told his missionaries, don't read this in public when you're on the mission field because it is too revolutionary for some parts of the world to cope with. This is a revolutionary song. And as you read it, you realize there are, there's a contrast between two different groups of people. There are the humble and the lowly. That's one group, okay? Humble, lowly people, one group. Natural poverty, spiritual poverty. And I want you to see what, what is said about those Those people, he is mindful of them in verse 48. His mercy extends to them in verse 50. He lifts them up in verse 52. He fills them with good things in verse 53. He helps them in verse 54. And he remembers his promises and is merciful in verse 55. That's God's position towards the humble, lowly people. But then there's another group of people, the proud and the arrogant Look at what it says about them. He has scattered the proud in verse 51. It says that they are proud in their inmost thoughts. Their thinking internally is all skewed. In the thoughts and the imaginations of their own hearts, they are incorrect in how they think. He has scattered the proud 
in the imaginations of their hearts, or those who are proud in the imaginations of their hearts. In verse 52, he has brought down the rulers. I just picture him going up to some throne that some human being has created for themselves and set themselves on and then downtrodden other people, oppressed other people, taken advantage of them, exploited them, you know, got, got wealthy on the backs of the poor, someone like Pharaoh, someone like a- anyone who just exploits people. I can imagine King Jesus just going up to the throne and grabbing them by their collar and saying, down you go. Down you go. There's going to be a revolution. And there's going to be a reversal. Down you go. He has brought down rulers in verse 52. And in verse 53, he sent the rich away empty. The hungry, the humble, the lowly filled. The rich sent away empty. Which of those two categories do you want to be in? Lowly, humble, proud, arrogant. What posture do you want God to have towards you? See, Jesus is not impressed by what culture is impressed with. And with this, I finish. You read the gospel. He's impressed by a widow who put in two coins into the offering basket. He's impressed by a centurion, a Gentile, a pagan who had more faith than Israel. He's impressed by the faith of a Syrophoenician woman who wanted her daughter to be touched by him and would not go away. He's impressed by an unclean woman who pushes through a crowd to touch him. He's impressed by a woman from whom he cast out seven demons and then she washes his feet with her hair. He's impressed by the lowly. Those are the people that he's impressed with. Those are the people that he hangs out with. You don't read of him very often spending time with people that the world looks at as being high and mighty. What Mary has experienced in Luke 1 is what we all experience. God wants to put his life within us and he wants to transform us. And her response of song should be instructive to us. We are to be a singing people. Get rid of the excuses. Sing out of key. Clap out of rhythm. Whatever it may be, get on with it. We're a singing people. We are the people of God. And regardless of what's going on around us, we will defiantly put our fists in the air and we will sing of this great God. Not sing of ourselves, our own accomplishments, but sing and exalt him like Mary did. Father, thank you for the example of Mary. Lord, stir up a new song in our hearts today, I pray. I ask for my brothers and sisters, Lord, for whom the enemy has tried to muffle And he's tried to silence them. He has thrown all sorts of stuff at them. He has tried to put a a bucket over them and just quieten them and silence them and push them down. I pray in the name of Jesus that you will put a new song in their hearts. Even now, Holy Spirit, this very moment, a new song. A new song. And that many will hear it. And join in with it and sing along with it, Father. I ask you to do this, Lord. I ask in response to your word and just in faith and the power and the presence of your spirit with us that you would put a new song in the hearts of those who are discouraged, those who have been silenced, those little birds who used to sing and sing and sing, but they've been silenced. And instead of all of the garbage that the enemy has thrown at people and put upon them discouragement and disappointment, depression and darkness and slander and whatever instead of that covering 
I pray, Father, that the covering that Mary experienced, the power of the Most High, will overshadow us. Will overshadow us. And that we will respond in song and we will magnify. We will magnify God, our Savior. We love you, Lord. Thank you for the songs of Christmas. Thank you for the songs of the church throughout the year. Thank you for the the legacy of music. Oh God, may we be a singing people. May we sing like never before. Magnify the Lord with me. In Jesus' name. Amen.